All right, last week, if you were with us, uh, you saw that we looked at the first part of our mission statement. You see our mission statement on the bulletin. It says uh, that we exist as a church uh, to bring the personal work of Jesus Christ to bear in our lives uh, and in our community. In other words, that's for us as Christians. We need the personal work of Christ just as much as the people who aren't Christians need the personal work of Christ. We talked about what it means for us to need Jesus last week, and this week we're going to talk about what it means for our neighbors, for those outside the church to need Jesus. And um, I'm using a familiar passage. Actually, this exact Sunday, 52 weeks ago, I preached this exact same text, and um, I'm preaching largely the exact same sermon. And I probably will preach the exact same text and largely the exact same sermon in 52 more weeks. Partly because, not because I'm laziness, I am lazy, but, um, but I think this passage is just so beautiful. And I think it paints a perfect picture of what I think God is calling us to as a church. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, you have not left us in the dark with who we are, who you are, more importantly, and what our world is like. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would uh, use this time, not just as a lesson, uh, not as just a chance to get our battery recharged so that we might be more effective, uh, but, Lord, that we might uh, encounter you and see in you all that our hearts long for. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, I grew up in a house uh, where the news was always on. Uh, I grew up in a house uh, with a, a dad, who, mom and dad, that loved talk radio. A lot of Rush Limbaugh uh, in my childhood. And um, I think reacting kind of out of that, I was like, man, I'm never going to listen to the news. I'm, I've heard enough news uh, the first 18 years of my life that I can go the next 82 years if I get to 100 without any. And then COVID hit. And I became, for the first time in my adult life, a consumer of the news. And after two and a half years of perusing the major media outlets, I'm, I'm about done. I'm about ready to have another 20-year hiatus. Um, and in part because everything that comes across my feed now is just so depressing. It's probably always been like that, but I, I think I'm just more aware of it now. You know, you just, Ukraine and Russia keep going at it. I saw the other day that church membership is at an all-time American low. That just 60 years ago, 70% of America uh, were members of a church. And now it's down to 47. The opiate epidemic is getting worse, not better. Suicide rates are up in America. The wealth gap between the rich and the poor widens in our country. Our sexualized culture is making women commodities and men addicts. So I'm ready to quit. And I could go on and on. I, I mean, that's just... That didn't take any time at all to come up with that list. Even though we could go on and on, I don't want to. Instead, I'd rather ask the question, what should we do? I mean, after all, as uh, Christians, the New Testament does call us Christ's ambassadors. It does say that we are vessels of his presence. The New Testament does say that we are his messengers of love and peace, does it not? And it's good for us to ask these kinds of questions about improving the world. But why do we jump so quickly to coming up with a solution? Well, maybe it's because we live in a society that's governed by technique. We live in a society that's inspired by a spirit of do-it-yourself. So we know exactly what to do when we find a problem, don't we? We define it. We explain it. 
We develop a solution and we implement the solution. I mean, pretty much any nonprofit that asks you for money does these four things. Pretty much anything that happens at your work, you're working through those four steps. And it's not a bad method. It's good for fixing faucets. It's good to write legislation for tax code. But some problems cannot be solved by gathering data and developing targeted action items. Now, that doesn't mean that we should lose hope of things getting better or that we should cease doing good. It just means we've got to rethink what our role is in changing the world. See, I think we, we start with this kind of tangible goal. When we have this all lined up with defining the problem and creating a solution. That we're just really putting a human solution and something that's finite and something that will always come up short. I think as we come up with these solutions, we're, we're also tied up in our delusions of grandeur of our ability to save society. And if we're not tied up in our delusions of grandeur of our ability to save society, then we're completely overwhelmed by our society. And we throw our hands in the air in defeat and then we retreat from our broken world. But what if there's another option besides fix it and retreat? What if God has promised to redeem our world and he actually wants to use little old you and little old me? Well, I think he does. And I think our vision would happen at least to some degree. And our vision as a church is that all souls in and around downtown Lexington would flourish in a community that's rooted in Jesus Christ, that's compelled by his gospel, and that strives for a more beautiful and just city. Now, we've been talking about our mission statement to bring the personal work of Jesus Christ to bear in our lives and our community. And this is what we should wake up every day as a church thinking through. Our mission kind of serves as our marching orders, but then our vision statements is what we hope to see as we live out our mission. And wouldn't it be amazing to see our vision lived out at least to some degree? That we see people flourish instead of waste away. That we see people in community instead of being isolated. That we see people that are compelled by something solid like the gospel instead of some hollow political ideology. Wouldn't it be amazing to strive for a beautiful and just city instead of the American dream of individual success and happiness? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but I do think it's possible. But I think the solution is God-sized. And I think we can't go about it the way that we go about all our other problems. We have to go about it differently. I think we can go about it the way that Jeremiah 29 spells out. So let's read verses 4 to 7 together. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word of the Lord. All right. I'm assuming that there's no Jeremiah scholars among us. And I needed this refresher this week. 
to give some context to what we see here in these four verses, we've got to figure out what was going on historically in the book of Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah is a prophet. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to help these exiles to find ways to live faithfully and hopefully in Babylon. See, they were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. They were there from 609 to 539 B.C. And the way that this exile came about was that the Babylonians, they laid Jerusalem under siege so that nothing could get into the city, including food. And if food couldn't get into the city, Jerusalem was going to starve to death. And eventually, Jerusalem got hungry enough that they caved to the Babylonians. And here's what the Babylonians did. They captured their king. They burned down their temple. They burned down the palace to the king. They burned down every house in Jerusalem. They tore down the wall around Jerusalem. And then they carted off the majority of the Jews to Babylon to be integrated into Babylonian society. In this integration piece, this is what the Babylonians were masters at. See, their strategy for integration was not forcing the Israelites to be slaves. Their strategy was not quarantining them into their own society within the larger Babylonian society. No, 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 no. Because they knew that if they did that, that the Jews could get mad enough, rise up and fight the Babylonians. But instead, to integrate them, they wanted to assimilate them by giving them access to their whole society. The Babylonians said, hey, here's our education, take. Here's our marketplace, take. Here's our religion, take what you please. And their thinking was that after two generations, the cultural distinctives of those who had been captured would be swallowed up by the culture of Babylon. So that then you couldn't tell a Babylonian from an Israelite. So what does Jeremiah tell these people to do? These people who are in exile, these people who are in the midst of being assimilated. Look, look what he tells them to do in verses 4 to 6. Those verses 4 to 6 give a string of incredibly ordinary tasks. And ordinary is not what you would expect into this context, would you? I mean, ordinary doesn't make much of an impact. Ordinary isn't very exciting. What would be really exciting is if Jeremiah stood before them and said, let's revolt. What would be exciting is if Jeremiah stood before them and said, let's convert all those ugly Babylonians. That's not what he does. Instead, Jeremiah stands before them and calls them to live about the most ordinary life that you can imagine. Look at the first thing he tells them in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. When he says build a house and live in them, it's addressing their need for shelter, sure. But it also communicates the need for them to commit to a location, to not always have their eye on going back to Jerusalem. See, the principle was for them to not literally build a house, nor was it an imperative to be a homeowner. The principle is to commit to a place and resist the temptation to be perpetually mobile. See, Robert Putnam, he's a sociologist, and he's written a book called Bowling Alone. And in his research, he details how Americans have disengaged from in-person civic involvement of all kinds. And this is before COVID. And one reason he lists for this disengagement is mobility. He writes this. He says, nearly one in five of us move each year. 
More than two in five of us expect to move in the next five years. And accordingly, people who expect to move in the next five years are 20 to 25% less likely to attend church, attend club meetings, volunteer, something like a machi, or work on community projects than those who expect to stay put. See, committing to a place means that you stay put. Committing to a place as a Christian means you also own the lostness of your geography. And did you see the geography in our mission statement? The geography in our mission statement says that we long to see all souls in and around downtown. That's the lostness that we want to own. That's the brokenness that we want to see restored. And in order to own it, many of you have been led to move into the neighborhoods in and around downtown. Last count, about 80% of our church lives inside New Circle Road. And about two-thirds of our church lives on the east side of that circle in neighborhoods like Castlewood, downtown, campus, Kenwick, and Chevy Chase. And that opens up a lot of opportunity for us. What it opens up for is mission. Because we can know similar people. We can pray and love them in tandem. It opens up opportunity for community because it's a lot easier to hang out with people when you don't have to put it on the calendar three weeks in advance and you can just walk three doors down to see somebody that you're in community with here in our church. So place is really important. Build houses and live in them. Here's the next one. The next one is plant gardens and eat their produce. Now I've got four, four by eight raised beds in my backyard. Jenna does almost all the work with them. But we got this little urban garden, you know. Now, I know this is kind of in vogue. It's kind of popular. Lots of my neighbors have gardens. Uh, lots of my neighbors have chickens. And I live between 4th and 5th Street. I don't live in Nicholasville. Chickens. Gardens. So when it says plant gardens and eat their produce, it doesn't mean literally as much as it means that it's a metaphor for work. See, planting gardens speaks back to the stated purpose of Adam and Eve from the beginning. Remember what God said in the creation account? Here's what he said. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. See, we were made as human beings to work. Now, you might think work is the result of the fall, but work was thrilling for Adam and Eve here. You might feel exhaustion Lack of purpose, boredom about your work. But Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they went to bed every night perfectly content with the work that they had done. Wouldn't that be amazing? Every Monday, you were glad for it. Every Sunday night, you went to bed and you said, gosh, I can't wait to go to work in the morning. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. And here's what God has done. He's given us each a postage stamp size piece of his creation to tend and to keep. And it might not be a literal garden. And just like Adam and Eve were to bring out all the potentialities latent in their garden through their work. So are we called to bring out all the potentialities that are latent in our garden, our postage stamp size piece of creation to make it more beautiful. But what might that look like? What would you think about your job? Lots of other ways you can think about this, but what would you think about your job? Maybe you're in business in one way or another. 
And you don't need to quit your job to work for a church in order to do gospel work. But you do need to ask yourself some hard questions. Hard questions not like, not just like, who are the people who are lost, who don't go to church, nor in my work environment? That's not a bad question to ask necessarily. There's a lot harder ones to ask. There's a lot of other reasons you go to work than to be an evangelist. As a business person, you might ask questions like this. How does the product I'm offering benefit the welfare of humanity? What is the role of profits in my business? Will my particular business wrongfully take advantage of the marginalized or the environment? Hard questions to ask, right? What about the medical profession? See, if you're in the medical profession, you don't need to go into medical missions to do gospel work. Instead, a medical professional should ask questions like, how do I offer care that gets to the deeper causes and not just treat symptoms? Even when just treating symptoms is easier, more desired, more efficient, and often more cost-effective. Medical professional asks questions like, how do I treat patients not as problems to be fixed, but as image bearers of God? Medical professions ask, am I in this profession because of the financial security or because I desire to serve those under my care? See, hard questions. Plant gardens and eat their produce. See, but as a church, we've got to view our Mondays as important as our Sundays. We've got to view them as just as important because Seeing our city become beautiful and just means that we've got to take our job seriously. I know that your work can be grueling, your work can be boring, mine can too. But it's also possible for your work to be deeply fulfilling and hugely beneficial for our city. All right, now look at family. This third one we talked about being committed to a place. Talked about our jobs, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Look at the next line. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Here's what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is holding up the importance of family. He's saying that marriage and parenting are crucial to what God's trying to do among them in exile. He's saying in many ways the most powerful way to resist the assimilation of Babylon is to have children and pass the faith down to them so that they can pass it on to another generation. See, you see what Jeremiah does here. He's giving this all-encompassing view of life because when you really boil life down to how you spend the 168 hours of your week, a large portion of them are about committing to your place, (laughs) maintaining your domicile. A large part of your week boils down to dealing with family in one way or another. A large part of your week boils down to going to work. Now, that might not be very motivating for you. It's understandable, especially when you consider the environment we live in. See, I would call most Americans visionaholics. We're constant targets of marketing campaigns and the noise to try to get us on board with various brands and causes and organizations. 
And then what the church does is it just joins in on this visionaholic spirit with calls to be radical and be extreme. Because that's what gets us excited. But it's also what burns us out. But what if, as a church, we prize these ordinary activities? Ordinary activities of family life and work and commitment to place, and we did this over the long haul. Well, I think we would see our church's vision dance before our eyes. We would begin to see for all souls in and around downtown Lexington to flourish in a community that's rooted in Jesus Christ, that's compelled by his gospel, and that strives for a more beautiful and just city. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 in Jeremiah 29. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, you, you probably heard those three things. Committing to a place, going to work, and doing family. And you can be assured that you can do it in such a way that it's all about you. It really has nothing to do with the outside world. It really has everything to do with control and predictability and comfort. And that would easily be the case for Israel, wouldn't it? I mean, you you know that these Israelites, that they wanted to withdraw from the Babylonians. You know they wanted to escape from the Babylonians because the Babylonians have hurt them. And the Babylonians are potentially dangerous. I mean, they burn their houses for crying out loud. But that's not God's call through Jeremiah to his people They're to do these ordinary things in such a way that it benefits the Babylonians. See, what God is essentially calling the Israelites to do is to love their enemies. And it sounds impossible considering what they've gone gone through, doesn't it? But I think what the Israelites could remember is that their captivity was not random. It's not like they just ran up against a supremely powerful political empire who took advantage of their low estate. No, 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 that is not what happened. The Israelites' captivity was their fault. See, 2 Kings chapter 20, God tells them what their fate is going to be because they have forsaken him. See, they weren't just victims of Babylon. They're villains before holy God. So in this command to seek the welfare of the city, there are echoes of grace. Can't you hear them? God hasn't utterly washed his hands of these people Because now he's empowering the Israelites to do something impossible. Even though the Israelite city has been pummeled and now they're living in the city of the enemy, God's calling them to use their imagination to envision a city that's to come. See, they wouldn't be in Babylon forever. They would be brought back to Jerusalem by God where a king would reign in David's line once again. And he would reign not with an iron fist of power, but with a foot-washing cloth of service. And in the end, his service would be a death on a cross. And you know where that death was? Hebrews 13 says it was outside the city. See, this city where Jesus died, this was his city where he was king. And Jesus chose to be banished from the city that was his. So that you and I could be included in the city that is to come, which empowers us to live in the city that is. See, you and I could be angry. We can be fearful of the world all we want. 
It hurts to live in a world of injustice and it calls for a certain amount of anger. It's scary to live in a world that really can do us harm and do our loved ones harm. But make no mistake, Christian. There's a certain impulse for you to hunker down. To hunker down in your family and within our church and homes so that you won't get further hurt. We've got to resist this impulse to retreat. We've got to stand squarely in the midst of our city and seek its welfare by committing to place, by going to work, and by doing family. Because one day, King Jesus is going to come and bring a heavenly city into ours. And it's going to be beautiful. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we know you're coming one day. Lord, I pray you would give us hope now. Lord, that you would give us endurance now. Lord, when we want to pull the ripcord and escape from all the dangers that exist in our world. Lord, help us to stand in there in love and wisdom. Lord, we need your help. In Christ's name, amen.